0: Hello everybody, welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show. We are back live this weekend. I hope you have all been doing very well and it's great to be back live amongst you all. So as always, let's see who all is there on the live chat. I can see a whole lot of people. Sabana, Arpita, Saitama, Saurabh, Ashwin, Rishikesh, Vivek, Samrat, Sagar, CBJ, Dutch, Van der Linde, Ishita, Sushrut, Vipul, Divya, Vaishnavi, Rakshasi, Raj, <laughs> Ketan, Vankhede, Dhruv, rajnish Karthik, Iyer, Vil, Nair, LMG, Pankaj, Kumar, Tiaghi, TDC, Niharika, Martian, Herbion on Wheels, Shiva, <clears throat> Shivansh, Pamel Nandi, Dr. Amitru Parelia, Somnath, O Lotus, Vishesh, Somya Jain, Janak Ujwal Dhruvkumar, Kumar DK Pramod Yada Bavuk Kishan Moti RP Ahas Bharat Shivanch Foram Aditya Durga M Tushar Bandekar Bauji Kishan Exasperated Farago Ajiral e. Debosman Rajat Garvit Barno Abhishek Makarand Sumedha Asmenor Zaina Jyotishman, Rohan, Gotham, and and so many, so many other people. It's it's great to be back amongst you all live again. Geopolitical Dube, Maximus Prime, Killfish, Jasman Raj Singh, uh, Nita Rao, Sanat uh, Sumeda, Divya, and so on. Uh, thank you so much for being on this live uh, on this live stream. So with that said, let's go into the questions. As you know, today I'm going to take questions from the comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done a few of the uh, live chat, live streams in the past, in the past uh, few weeks. There was a break of a couple of weeks because I was traveling, but yes. So today we're going to take questions from the comments, the comments, uh, the questions you have asked in the comments. So let's get into it right away. What's question number one? Question number one is by Tata Dvipat. Uh Anthony Albanese, boss comment on Prime Minister Modi. Those are are just words. What do you think he, why do you think he said this? Yes, so recently, uh, Prime Minister Modi of India visited Australia. He was in Australia on, I think, the 23rd and the 24th of this month, May, 2023. And over there, he had these public welcomes and public events. And Prime Minister Albanese was with him the Prime Minister of Australia, and at some point, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia made this comment, he called Prime Minister Modi the boss, so what was he referring to? I think he was referring to Bruce Springsteen, the American singer, you know, uh, he was uh, very, very popular in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and so on, he's still very popular, and he, w- Bruce Springsteen was nicknamed the boss. And he used to draw these enormous crowds. That's how popular he was. So I think uh, the Australian Prime Minister was referring to that when he called Mr. Modi the boss. He's, essentially, he means that Prime Minister Modi, whenever he comes to Australia, draws enormous crowds, the kind of crowds the Australian Prime Minister himself cannot draw in Australia. So that's why uh, he made this comment, uh, comment, and that's what it uh, was referring to. So what do I think of this? Well, it's a nice comment, but that's... It's, also, it's always nice to praise your guests and say nice things about them right it's it's good manners it's a common courtesy especially when you're uh, when you are uh, hosting a, a visiting head of state you say nice things about them so uh, it's a nice gesture it's a nice thing to say but after all at the end of the day uh, words have no geopolitical meaning uh, implications unless they are made in a very specific context so uh, in the past you know uh, Indian leaders of the past have been very susceptible to flattery. Mr. Modi is not one of those leaders. He is a new, is a new kind of guy. He's a very different uh, kind of leader. It's uh, you cannot get things done by you know flattering him. But anyway, this is something that uh, historically has worked with Indian leaders. So it's it's something that the West still does. And you will say that Australia is not the West. It's in the eastern hemisphere. It's in the southern part below the equator south of the equator well australia is when we talk about the west we're talking about a political or geopolitical term not a geographical term and australia and new zealand are part of the west even though they are physically geographically in the east so um so that's what prime minister albanese meant by calling mr Modi the boss He was praising Mr. Modi. He was saying a nice thing about him. He was comparing him with a mega star, Bruce Springsteen. And that's what it was. It has no geopolitical meaning or implication. It's just, you know, you're praising the person you're hosting, the the world leader you're hosting. So that's all it is. There's nothing more to it than that. Okay, next question. Let's try and take as many questions as we can today. And then hopefully even some from the live chat, if we get some time. Ishan Bhai says, your thoughts on our so-called close ally Saudi Arabia boycotting G20 summit in Kashmir. So, I would like to once again urge my dear viewers, let's not get emotional (laughs) when it comes to geopolitics. Emotions have no place in geopolitics. Okay, so what's the deal? So, see, why am I saying this? Because the the language here, so-called close ally, it's, it's kind of sarcastic and kind of hurt. There's some emotion there. So, understand... Uh, how things work saudi arabia has excellent relations with india under prime minister modi we have developed very close very warm very friendly uh, and, and 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 overall very good relations with many of the gulf nations saudi arabia the uae and so on right oman and so on now it doesn't mean that we are allies. It means that we have lots of shared geopolitical and other interests, but we don't have any official alliance. Okay, so that's number one. Secondly, yes, Saudi Arabia did not attend the G- the G20 event. It was not the summit. This was not the G20 summit that happened in Kashmir. It was one of the G20 events. There are more than a hundred G20 events happening all over India this year. It will all culminate with the summit meeting, the the final meeting. Uh, It will be in winter this year, autumn or winter. So the event that happened in Kashmir was one of the tourism events. And Saudi Arabia did not participate in it. Well, they chose not to. Why are we making a big deal of it? I mean, I'm sure there is some geopolitical reason and I'll come to that. But listen, I attended the... uh, The S20 science initiation meeting in Pondicherry. I think it was in February or March. I think most likely end of February or beginning March, thereabouts. This year, it was a G20 event. The initiation meeting of the S20 dialogue, of the S20 stream of the G20 thing. So I was there in Pondicherry in the initiation meeting and the Saudis did not send a delegate. So are we going to start complaining that Saudi Arabia boycotted the science event, the S20 event in Pondicherry? Are we going to start complaining about that? So let's see things more holistically. Let's see the big picture. So the Saudis did not send somebody any, any delegate for the S20 event. So it's not a boycott. It's just that they chose to skip this. You know, when I do... Earlier, I used to do these live streams based on various topics. I used to do geopolitics-themed live streams in which I will only take geopolitics questions. Then I used to do history-themed live streams in which I only took history questions. And then I used to do these science live streams. And I always saw that, well, when I'll do geopolitics or history live streams, I will get X amount of live viewers. When I do science, it's like one-third of that because nobody is interested in science. So overall in the world, very few people find science interesting. Of course, science is very important for for progress. But overall, there is less interest in science. So maybe the Saudis found that science is not interesting and we'll, let's not send a delegate for that event. Maybe it's that. So now coming to the tourism event. Well, you will see tweets by various Arab influencers, Arab people, wearing the dish dasha and all that, you know, the Arabic uh, traditional dress, in Kashmir, saying that, look how beautiful Kashmir is. Uh, this is not Switzerland. It's not something else. It's, it's India. It's Kashmir. That's what Various Arab influencers have done on social media, uh, so it's not like the Arabs are supporting Pakistan or supporting China. I mean individually. Now, why? Let's come to now the geopolitical thing. Why did Saudi Arabia choose not to uh, send a delegate for this specific event? Well, clearly there must be possibly, possibly a geopolitical angle to it. The Chinese. Are investing in Saudi Arabia. They are buying, investing in the sense that they are buying lots of Saudi oil, oil that the Saudis are producing. The Americans are no longer buying Saudi oil, so the Saudis need other buyers, and China is one of the major buyers. So is India. Okay, and recently there was some kind of uh, agreement, a bunch of agreements that were that were agreed upon between President Xi Jinping and the Saudi uh, government when Xi Jinping visited a few months ago, right? So clearly the Saudis. uh, they they, uh, they give a lot of importance to their relations with China and s- similarly with India as well. So I am sure the Chinese must have told the Saudis to stay away from this, maybe pressurize them. And the Saudis prudently thought it, you know, a, a good thing to do not to send a delegate. It doesn't mean they are boycotting the event. They are taking part in various other uh, events as well. They're just staying away from controversy. That's all they are saying. That's all they are doing. The Saudis are not anti-India. The Saudis actually, overall, if India were much larger, much more powerful, much much richer, they would prefer India over China. And they would obviously want to hedge their bets and spread the risk overall. But that's how it goes. So most likely, the Saudis did not want to get in, embroiled in any unnecessary geopolitical dispute or controversy. They're not taking this side or that side. They're staying out of it. So, it its it doesn't mean that they, they are boycotting the, the summit or the event. They're just staying out of controversy. I'm sure there is Chinese pressure. So, we need not look at it as emotionally as some kind of backstabbing or anything. It's nothing. It's no big deal. This is par for the course in diplomacy and geopolitics. We have to understand they have compulsions, the same way that we also have compulsions, right? So that's how it. Uh, that's how the geopolitical game is played. And we need not. We must not get emotional about every little thing. Always see the big picture. Overall, in the big picture the India Saudi Arabia relationship is excellent. So let's not uh, because they they made a certain choice. We didn't. We don't need to, you know get emotional about it and all, and all that. I mean, if you look at India's uh, record in the United Nations, we have voted against Israel so many times, including in recent, in, in recent, uh, recent the last couple of years also. So, do we want the Israelis to get all emotional about this? No. Right? There are certain compulsions or whatever reasons. I, I will not go into the Israel angle right now. So, it's all about, you know, uh, Treading a very prudent path, and sometimes you don't do certain things. It doesn't mean that the relationship is bad. So look at it that way. Next, Tushar says, hypothetically speaking, if there is a nuclear Russian nuclear offensive on Ukraine, then the retaliation of the West would be from the ground of the US or Ukraine. That's okay. Where will the retaliation of the West from the West come from? That's question number one. Secondly, how would the Bharatiya government react to it? would would they announce a lockdown like step okay hypothetically <clears throat> if there's a russian nuclear attack offensive on ukraine well first of all i think uh, that is extremely unlikely there is a certain red line nobody wants to cross we nobody wants to cross the nuclear threshold the way the americans did in 1945 nobody wants to do such a thing the russians are not mad people they're not crazy Russia is a very rational nation, and Mr. Putin is not a madman the way the Western media portrays him. He's a very rational person. I mean, see the incredible restraint he has shown. C- c- compare that with what happened in World War II. Yeah, who was the bad guy in World War II? It was Hitler. Do you see the behavior Hitler showed, and can you contrast it with what with the, with the with the uh, actions Putin is taking? Enormous contrast. Putin is not a madman. He's a very rational person. He he knows exactly what he wants to achieve and he exi- knows exactly what he doesn't want to do. So he's very clear about his objectives. So, um, <clears throat> so he's not crazy, first of all. He's not a madman. And I do not see him crossing the nuclear threshold unless he has no other option. And the nuclear threshold will be crossed only when Russian soil itself will come under threat. And Russian territory may be in a position that they will lose Russian territory or or something like that. That's the only scenario in which I see the Russians using nuclear weapons. And then they would use tactical nuclear weapons to begin with. But hypothetically, since we are dealing with hypotheticals, let's say there is a Russian tactical uh, nuclear strike somewhere in Ukraine, let's say. Then where will the retaliation of the West come from? It will not come from the ground of the US. If you look at the map and there are maps available on Google, I will not open and search for them, it will take time. But uh, the Americans have nuclear weapons stashed away, deployed on European soil. There are nuclear weapons, American nuclear weapons, in various parts of Europe, including in Turkey. The Turks have American nuclear weapons deployed on their territory. And they're not in the control of the Turks. They're controlled by Americans on Turkish territory. Similarly, there are other European nations like Germany. I expect Netherlands and, and other nations. So essentially, they have encircled Russia in, in to a certain extent. Let's let's go to the map. Oh yeah, we must see the map. Where is the map? Here is the map. So let's go to the map, and let's let's take a look at this. All right, we must have the map. Maps are essential to understanding geopolitics. So look we can see the the boundaries of moscow of of um, i'm sorry of russia so ukraine is de facto NATO uh, territory. It's a proxy war that's being fought by multiple by, by fighters of multiple na- nationalities against one nation, Russia. That's what's happening in the Ukraine conflict. Uh, Belarus, you can say, is is a Russian vassal state or Russian um, client state. The, recently, the Russians have transferred nuclear weapons, are, or or maybe maybe they're in the process of transferring nuclear weapons to to the soil of Belarus. But if you look at Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, etc., these are all pro-NATO, very strongly pro-NATO nations. Um, If you come to the south, you have Turkey, which is pro-NATO, and so on. So Russia from the west is essentially encircled, and the Americans have lots of nuclear weapons deployed in various parts of Europe. They also have nuclear submarines, and so on. So if the Russians go crazy, hypothetically, and launch, you know, Deploy nuclear, I mean launch a nuclear strike on Ukraine somewhere, then there will most likely be a retaliation from the US, which means from NATO, and it will happen from European territory. See, Europe, Western Europe is a huge buffer zone for America. It is something that prevents the Russians from advancing westwards. That is the real utility of Europe for the Americans. So if there is a nuclear war to be fought, they will they will launch the nuclear strikes from Europe itself, so that any response will hit Europe and not the U.S. Okay, so that's the utility of Europe. It will absorb, it will be the buffer. It will absorb the brunt of Russia's nuclear retaliation if it ever happens. So the retaliation will not be from the from U.S. soil, it will be from Europe or from from Ukraine, in case Americans have any nukes there, I'm sure they, I I think they, they don't have any. Okay, so that's the deal. First, that's the first part of the question. Secondly, how would the Bharatiya government react to a hypothetical Russian nuclear strike on Ukraine? It will be a very strong condemnation of Russia. That's what India will do. India will have no choice but to condemn Russia. If Russia launches of, you know, an unprovoked or first strike on Ukraine. If Russia is hit by a nuclear strike and then retaliates, India will will not condemn it. But any nation who launches a first strike will get intense condemnation. What do they say in Hindi? Kadi Hindi? Ninda or something like that. The, the harshest of, of uh, condemnation. That's what you will get from India. So if Russia does it, that's what India. That's how India will have no option but to respond. India will not announce a lockdown. What do you do with a lockdown? First of all, there, If there's a nuclear strike somewhere there in Ukraine or, or Russia, it's not going to affect India, unless there are hundreds of nuclear weapons being destroyed, deployed, which is World War Three. In which case, it will affect the entire world. So imagine you have a nuclear disaster somewhere. Okay, uh, imagine you're in in some place on the planet, on the surface, you're staying in some city, and let's say 100 kilometers away, there is a nuclear explosion. Maybe a nuclear reactor explodes or or a nuclear strike. By announcing a lockdown, what are you going to achieve? Radiation doesn't care about walls. Radiation flows through the air. So for that, you have to understand uh, a little bit of physics. So a lockdown will do nothing okay if if there is radiation poisoning and there's radiation in the air a lockdown will achieve nothing so there's nothing you can do about that okay so that's i i think the answer to the question india will condemn such an action if it ever happens i don't think it will happen amman saini says what can india learn from the russia ukraine conflict how can how can how can India ensure that it rises and get its lost territories back and forth? Okay, let's not talk about getting lost territories and Akhand Bharat and all that stuff. Let's address the actual question, the first part of the question. What lessons can India learn from the Ukraine-Russia conflict? So the first thing, the first lesson India can learn is that you need enormous stockpiles of ammunition. You need millions of bullets. You need... Uh, Huge quantities of artillery shells. You need very large numbers of missiles. Tens of thousands of missiles. And uh, that's, that's number one. You need lots of that. You need to have enormous stockpiles of ammunition and bullets and artillery shells and missiles, cruise missiles, various kinds of missiles. Enough to last years. Not three weeks or four weeks or whatever. There's no guarantee any war will be short and sharp. Wars can be drawn out wars, long simmering conflicts. Look at what's happening in Ukraine. So, you need enormous stockpiles of ammunition and missiles. That's number one. Secondly, we have seen that the, um, we have seen not just in the Russia Ukraine conflict, but also in the uh, Azerbaijan Armenia conflict, the increasing and critical role that drones, you, you know, loitering munitions are are playing. Very cheap loitering munitions and drones, quadcopters, they are playing a critical role in these battles and in this conflict. So, a drone, a cheap drone can take out a tank. The Shahid drones can take out missi- I mean, uh, they can take out buildings and whatnot. Uh, so, yeah, and, and and quadcopter, uh, you know, very uh, very roughly, very very quickly modified, rigged quadcopters can can take out soldiers, enemy soldiers, in a very pinpoint manner from the sky, and you can actually see the whole thing happening. Terrible, but that's how it is. So we cannot, we can no longer fight 20th century wars anymore. We have to uh, firmly come into the 21st century and start empl- utilizing 21st century technology. And, you know, the new technology, the very cheap disposable technology like drones and all that, it's making very expensive weapon systems increasingly obsolete. So India cannot afford to be left behind this. The Indian strategic planners and thinkers and generals, etc., need to, I'm sure they're doing it, I'm. and nobody to lecture them. I'm saying these are the lessons that India needs to learn. We need to keep watching what's happening. In a sense, from the Western perspective, Ukraine is like a laboratory where you can see how the future wars will be fought. Yeah, so so that's number two, the increasing and, and very relevant uh, role that drones and new technology, unmanned systems will play. Recently, we saw this video, uh, this event in which a bunch of Ukrainian uh, remote-controlled unmanned boats tried to take out a Russian warship. I think at least one of these boats was able to ram the warship. That's what it looks like from what we have seen so if you have a boat which has no personnel on it it's a high speed boat you either remote control it just like you would do with a drone or you equip it with a, with a with an ai system and you put explosives explosives in that then that's a very cheap uh, means of trying to destroy uh, destroy a warship i mean you can use a million dollar missile like the i don't know how much the brahmos costs per piece it must be close to a million dollars BrahMos missiles, uh, instead of that you use a $50,000 boat and you use 20 of those it's very really hard to take out 20 so you know, that gives you a higher chance, a higher probability of, of taking out uh, of taking out the the warship so that's another thing so there are a number of these lessons to be learned and thirdly, Russia has been able to withstand US sanctions because it is an autarky What's an autarky? It's completely self-sufficient in in all the critical resources. Completely self-sufficient in agriculture. Completely self-sufficient in petroleum and oil and natural gas Mm -hmm. and coal and and iron and, and all the essentials that it takes to have a functioning economy and a functioning nation. Russia is completely self-sufficient in this. And, and 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 that's why they have been able to withstand the sanctions. The sanctions have done nothing, uh, more or less nothing. Obviously, the Russian ruble has overall, you know, withstood the sanctions very robustly. There's been some fluctuations up and down, but overall it's been able to withstand these sanctions very robustly. And of course, Russia has been able to uh, find outlets for its oil, that it's no longer able to supply to Europe because of all this. So it's 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 found the outlets in China and India mainly and other nations as well. So these are the things that allowed, that have enabled Russia to withstand the sanctions, to survive the sanctions, and so far it's doing well. So these are the, some of the lessons. These are some of the lessons. I'm sure I can think about this for a couple of hours and list down a whole lot more points, but this is what I can think of off the top of my head. There's so many lessons that India needs to learn from this. Anmol says, the new US ambassador to India, Mr. Eric Garcetti, is showering praises on Prime Minister Modi. His track record would suggest otherwise. Your thoughts on this? My thoughts are very clear. Words have no meaning. Like I keep saying, I'm sure there are lots of new viewers here and and welcome to all of you. Like I keep saying, words are meaningless, only actions matter. You can sweet talk as much as long as as much as you want but if you the, the words are meaningless if your actions are the opposite of that I mean you you're stabbing somebody in the back or the front with one hand and then sweet talking them what what difference does it make? Uh, so uh, the words are meaningless in the past Indian leaders were very susceptible to flattery. I will not take names but the Americans had a very clear policy that just flatter the Indian leader. Whoever comes, say very nice things, very complimentary things about them and their nation, and then you will you can get anything done from them. So that no longer works because uh, <laughs> now India actually uh, plays uh, the real geopolitical game. Words don't matter anymore, and that's and we have a very clear and very very uh, well articulated and very well thought out foreign policy the modi doctrine which is which is also known as the jayashankar doctrine will understand that mr jayashankar dr jayashankar is simply implementing the will of prime minister modi so it's actually the modi doctrine so uh when it comes to mr Garcetti and uh, him showering praises on mr modi well he can keep doing that i'm i have nothing against that but we need to examine his actions he's is a, a very newly minted ambassador and uh, we have to keep an eye on him and see what actions he takes. So, in the past, the American uh, diplomats stationed in India have uh, tried to indulge in what they call subnational diplomacy, which, of course, is about creating more fissures and divisions within India, uh, engaging with anti-India forces within India and all that. And uh, Mr. Garcetti, like like Anmol says, his track record we know it very well. He he is a Biden loyalist. He has been given this this ambassadorship to India essentially as a reward for services rendered to Joe Biden and, and and the the political party, the Democratic Party, and all that. And his track record is tells you that he is a very you know an extreme leftist. He destroyed the state of California or not the state of California, um, the city. I think it was L. A. wasn't it, Los Angeles? That he was the mayor of. He presided over the ruin of the city. Um, so he is a very uh, he's got a very dubious and questionable track record, and obviously they have picked him and sent him as ambassador to India to to play a certain role. So we need to keep a very uh, close watch on him. I'm sure the Indian government will do it, and we will do whatever we can to mitigate whatever harm he intends to cause in India. Ah, uh, so let him shower as many praises as he wants on Mr. Modi on India. We must be wise to these things. We can no longer be treated like little children. It was so easy to, to just flatter India and you know get things done. Get things done. That won't work anymore. Jay Z says, "Hello, what's your opinion on Bob Lazar? Is it, is it true what he is saying that he worked in Area Fifty One and he was involved in reverse engineering alien aircraft and so on, alien craft?" Okay. So Bob Lazar is 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 a guy who says that he worked in Area 51. What is Area 51? Shall we find out? Let's take a look at the map. Let's let's discover Area 51. So Area 51. We need to go to the United States for that. All right. We are in United States. I think it's in the state of Nevada. Let's let's now search for it. Area 51, Nevada, USA. And zoom in. Boom. There you go. So this is what it looks like from above. As you can see, it's a dry lake bed in the middle of essentially nowhere, the Nevada desert, and it's it's kind of closed off. You try to cross the boundary, you're gonna get shot essentially by the by the uh, by the forces. And as you can see, there's this enormously long runway over here, very long. Let's try and measure the length. Shall we measure the length from from one end to another? measure the distance from here to there. It's almost eight kilometers. It's it's over eight kilometers. So that's an enormous runway. Typically, a runway that can accommodate very heavy aircraft would be about two to three kilometers, maybe three kilometers long. So this is enormous. Now, I'm not sure how functional it is, but there you have it. So this is essentially a, a testing facility where the American military and, and its associated uh, organizations, they test experimental futuristic aircraft and maybe spacecraft. It's essentially about testing the next generation of cutting edge military aircraft. That's what it is. Okay, So this place is Area 51. As you can see, they have many buildings and all these things over here. And uh, there are hangars over here, and we cannot see what's inside clearly. Obviously, they will keep it concealed. And there is there are certain standard aircraft that are sitting over here, parked over there, and so on. So it's a testing facility. That's what Area 51 is. Now, this uh, gentleman, Bob Lazar, claims that he worked there. That's that's the first claim he has made. And like like uh, Jay-Z is saying, he says he has claimed that uh, he worked on uh, reverse engineering alien technology. So what he is saying is that in Area 51, the US government has at least one, if not many, multiple alien, what we would colloquially call UFOs or flying saucers. So alien aircraft, alien craft, spacecraft, aircraft, whatever you want to call it, they have a few of those and they are reverse engineering the technology of these uh, alien craft. That's what he has Claimed, and there are also rumors or, or claims that they have some you know alien extraterrestrial beings whose bo- who died and whose bodies are preserved or kept over there, and so on. That's the claim that's been made. So, now what can we say about what can I say about this? So, from my perspective, there are two options, there are two possibilities, there are two possible scenarios. One scenario is that Bob Lazar is telling the truth. The other scenario is that he is lying. And right now we are in a superposition of these two scenarios. Why are we in a superposition that he may be... Why is it so? It's because we don't have any evidence. See, if you make a claim, you have to present evidence to back up your claim. And if you make an extraordinary claim, you have to present extraordinary evidence. And the burden of proof always lies on the person who makes a claim. Understand this. That's how it goes. Imagine you Bob Lazar were to go to court, to court, and claim to the and, and claim in front of the judge that so and so happened, that I I did so and so, and there are alien artifacts over there. So the judge will say, "Show me the evidence." And if Bob Lazar is unable to provide hard, incontrovertible evidence, he will be thrown out of the court. Right? It will not be accepted. So that's how it goes. If somebody makes a claim, they have to present evidence. Now, now I understand that this is a top-secret facility. And if you work there, you will not be allowed to take out any video recordings, any photograph, even a square centimeter of anything which is in there. So I understand that even if this were true, I understand why he would not have any evidence. But unfortunately, from my perspective, I can believe something only when I see evidence. In Sanskrit, we call this Pratyaksha Praman, right? Visible, hard evidence. That is the best kind of evidence. Then you have Anuman and other, other forms of evidence, which are inferior to Pratyaksha Praman, hard evidence, em- empirical evidence. So when it comes to Bob Lazar, He may or may not be telling the truth. I do not know because I don't have any evidence. Now, I agree that I I myself have said this, that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, but it makes it hard to believe a claim. right? So, what can I say about this? What's my opinion? My opinion is that I do not know whether he is telling the truth or whether he is lying. I don't know. I'm sure it's possible. I mean, the probability... That he is telling the truth maybe on the lower side but i you cannot rule out the possibility that maybe the americans have something but then the question obviously arises the logical question is why do aliens and ufos only visit the us why not any other nation why haven't they visited india or china or or other, other other nations why do we never find evidence actual proper high quality video evidence 4k video evidence 1080p video evidence that is incontrovertible, and why can't we find a single event that's been witnessed by, let's say, fifteen different people at the same time? We never find such such events, you know. So that's why it's kind of hard to believe this. So, uh, so my opinion is that I don't know. I think that the probability that he is telling the truth is on the lower side, but I will not rule that out completely. But in the absence of evidence, I can say nothing about this. Jay says, "What is Tabby's Star, and what's the big, burning mystery about Tabby's Star?" So, Tabby's Star. So, this 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 is a very mysterious star that lies about roughly fifteen hundred light years from here, from the Earth. What is a light year? It's a unit of distance. Light travels at roughly three hundred thousand, three lakh kilometers per second. Is it kilometers? Is it meters? Look it up. It travels at an extremely high speed. Okay? Light. So, the amount, the distance that light travels one year, that's called a light year. Okay, it was not kilometers, it was meters. Okay? So, it's 300,000 meters per second. That's the speed of light. Roughly, roughly, give or take. So, in one second, light travels 300,000 meters. Multiply that by 60, by 24, by 330, 365, that's the amount of light uh, distance it travels in a year. That's a light year. So Tabby star is about 1500 roughly light years from Earth. That's number one. Now, this is one of standard main sequence kind of star. But there is something extremely mysterious about it. And the mystery has not been resolved. What's the mystery? so the mystery was brought to light by a scientist uh, by a graduate student a phd student named tabetha boyajian she was i think doing her phd at the time i'm sure now she has uh, she's she's she must be uh teaching by now so her name is tabetha boyajian tabetha the nickname is tabby that's why it's called tabby star so let me put something on the screen and show you a very technical, scientific document, but uh, I'll just show it to you briefly so that you don't get confused. Uh, so this is where the mystery begins. This uh, research paper, Planet Hunters X, whatever, where's the flux? So big, uh, So after this paper was announced and, and, and published, this star became, you know, like a cause célèbre. It became uh, big news. And even beyond the scientific community, it became big news. It became big big on the media. So it's called the WTF star. Where's the flux? Okay, that's what where's the flux actually means, WTF. So it's either called the WTF star or Tabby's star. So here's the mystery. So we we have discovered lots of exoplanets, right? Planets that are in orbit around distant stars. One of the ways of detecting an exoplanet is to... Uh, you know, point your telescope or, or your instrument, your detector at the star and see if you, you find certain dips in brightness. So in case the orbit of an exoplanet is directly aligned in the line in the plane between us and that star, then momentarily the planet will come between us and the star while doing its, you know, its orbit around, around the star. So when the planet crosses, when it transits, the star, you will suddenly, your detector, your instrument will suddenly witness and record a dip in brightness. And these dips, when stars go, uh, when planets go around stars, are periodic. Let's say a planet goes around a star once in 10 days, then you will get a, a dip in brightness once in every 10 days, on schedule. Okay, so that's how you detect, one of the ways of detecting exoplanets. So this star had this kind of detector instrument pointed at it. And what was detected was shocking. So instead of, uh, you know, regular dips in brightness once in so many days or once in so many months, this star had random dips in brightness. Random. Lots of dips in brightness. And some of the dips were so drastic, it was like 20% of the starlight was being occulted. 20%, up to 20%, roughly. That's an enormous dip. See, even if you have a Jupiter-sized planet that goes in front of the Sun, it's going to, you know, cause a a decline in the brightness by 1 or 2% at most. 20% means it's a massive object that is coming between us and that star. And these dips in brightness were happening randomly. There was no set pattern which you will have when there's something in orbit around the star. So that was the big mystery. And then several explanations were were proposed first of all they made sure that there is nothing wrong with the instrumentation and all that that was there was done so there is nothing wrong with the instrumentation the data is real then how do you explain this so one of the explanations is that there was there is a massive swarm of comets around the star and that these comets are so numerous and so 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 you know that's why it's it, it, we get this dips in brightness and they are very random but it doesn't sound very plausible I mean, how can you have a comet that that you know sh- shades out twenty percent of the starlight? That's weird. Secondly, they propose, the, they propose that there must be a huge interstellar, uh, you know, dust dust cloud or something, something like that, so, a circumstellar dust dust cloud, much larger than what we have ever seen anywhere else. But once again, it doesn't quite make sense, you know. And the third possibility that that got everybody very hyped up, including the media, is the possibility of a Dyson sphere around the star. So a Dyson sphere or a Dyson structure is an artificial structure that can only be constructed by a very advanced civilization, way beyond human capabilities. Let's... let's, uh, Let's Google it in Dyson surface or whatever. Dyson Dyson sphere. And let's put that on the screen so that you you understand what what we are dealing with here. So it's named after Freeman Dyson who first came up with this uh, idea. So this is what a Dyson sphere or, or structure would look like. An alien mega structure. So the purpose or objective of such a structure would be to harness the starlight and and you know convert that into energy so you would need to have an extremely advanced non human civilization to do this right so then actually this is way more plausible than uh, a swarm of comets or in a massive circumstellar dust uh, disc or whatever right so so that is the mystery of Tabby's star it looks i mean one of the possibilities that's been considered seriously is the possibility that there is an alien megastructure in orbit around this star you know so uh, as of today the mystery has not been resolved uh, obviously we would try to first look at non alien and non extreme Possibilities like the possibility of a huge swarm of comets or something like that, but it doesn't kind of sound very plausible, it doesn't really explain the data that we have. So, as of now, we don't have an answer, but yeah, the, the alien megastructure angle is still very much active. So, that and, and I think they've discovered more than one planet star like this now. So, yeah, the mystery may be deepening actually. But we still cannot say for sure that we have discovered something specific, like an alien megastructure. But yeah, it's interesting. So that's why the media, I think this was discovered in 2017, 2018, a few years ago. And there was a big media hype about this for a while. Now it's kind of receded into the background, but the mystery is still there. So that's what Tabby's star is. And that's the mystery surrounding it. Interesting. Sahana says, what's happening to Earth's magnetic field? Why is it weakening? Are the magnetic poles shifting? What are the consequences? Okay, so the Earth has a magnetic field. Bzz, magnetic lines of force that come out of the South Pole and re-enter the North Pole. Let's put an image on the screen so that you get an idea. Earth's magnetic field. And let's put that on the screen. Now let me explain why we have a magnetic field as well and what's happening with it. So what does Earth's magnetic field look like? It looks something like this. Okay, uh, This is a better image maybe. So as, if you see this image, you will see that the magnetic north and south poles are not exactly aligned with the geographic north and south pole. You go to the north pole of the Earth, you know exactly where the ge- geographic north pole is. There will be a marker there. You go to Antarctica, you will know exactly where the geographical geographic south pole is. You will find a marker there also. But the geographic north pole does not coincide with the magnetic north pole. And the geographic south pole does not coincide exactly with the magnetic south pole. The magnetic poles keep on moving over time. So as you can see, there is a di- difference between these things. Now, what what creates the magnetic field? First of all, let's address this. Earth internal structure... There you have it. So if if you look here, the earth, the internal structure of the earth is something like this. You have the crust, which on, on whose surface we live. Then you have the mantle, the outer core and the inner core. The outer core is molten metal, mostly iron and nickel. And the inner core is solid metal. It's extremely hot. Why is it so hot? It's It's the heat that's left over from the beginning, the birth of the solar system. Yeah. So the liquid outer core it keeps flowing. It keeps flowing, and this flowing, uh, and, and the other cause of the heat is, is is radiation inside the Earth. So the liquid outer core keeps flowing. It has currents, and the Earth also rotates, and they have, they have currents, and you have precession, and um, and you have the Coriolis effect. I'll not go into that and all. So that is what causes currents flowing because you have charged particles and ions and all that. So you have currents flowing inside the earth, electric currents, very powerful electric currents that flow along with the flowing of the the molten metal. And these electrical currents Currents, when they flow, they create massive magnetic fields. And that's why the Earth has these big magnetic fields and the North Pole and the South Pole. North magnetic pole and South magnetic pole. And this magnetic field of the Earth, it protects us. Without it, we would not be alive. It protects us from solar radiation. It protects us from cosmic rays. So that's why the magnetic field is essential for life. And you know, if the magnetic field disappears, then much of the water will start evaporating very fast and so on, on, like what happened on Mars. So that's why we have a magnetic field in very, very, I'm giving you a very rough idea of why. Now what's happening? What's happening is that the magnetic field, first of all, is weakening kind of, uh, and it's moving. So I believe right now, the magnetic field is, is moving away from from. From wherever it the, the North Pole is, magnetic North is, it's moving towards Russia. I think the speed is about 50 kilometers every year. That's that's significant. And similar something similarly something is uh, similar is happening with the South Magnetic Pole as well. So the poles are slowly shifting. Now this is a natural process. It happens. Uh, the last time the pole reversal also happens. You know, so the last time you had a pole reversal was nearly a million years ago. Nearly i think 700 or 800 thousand years before today or roughly a million years before today and and in between you have you know a weakening of the magnetic field and all these things so this is a natural process it's a cyclical process it keeps happening once in so many hundred thousand years maybe roughly a million years and you have you know the shifting of the magnetic poles so what are the consequences of this firstly if you have a weaker magnetic field then what will happen is that you will have more cosmic rays and more of solar radiation uh, impinging the surface of the earth. So that could perhaps possibly or maybe definitely cause a higher incidence of skin cancer and things like that. Uh, So that's one one consequence of that, uh, the weakening of the magnetic field. and. Uh, when the magnetic field becomes weaker, there are these migratory animals and birds, especially birds, that rely on sensing the magnetic field. They have the sixth sense, kind of, you know, they can sense the magnetic field. So if the magnetic field becomes weaker, then their migratory patterns may be affected. If the poles shift and reverse, then also you may have some consequences that we may not still understand yet. We may not be able to predict them. So that's the deal. So... That's what's happening. It's a natural phenomenon. We cannot stop it. If it happens, it happens. When it happens, it will happen. So the poles, some at some point in time in the future, will certain, certainly reverse. The geographic North Pole will be the home of this magnetic South Pole, eventually. That's what's going to happen in the future. When? I'm not sure when. We don't, we don't quite know when. It could happen suddenly. It could happen over time. We still don't understand very well because we don't have sufficient data about the internal structure of the earth. We know there is this liquid outer core, liquid metal, but we don't know the the nature of the currents and vortexes and all that. So we cannot model that in the absence of data. That's why we don't know how how fast this happens and when it will happen. So that's the deal. That's what's happening to the earth's magnetic field. It is weakening. That's a natural thing. It happens when the poles are moving away. Um, It may strengthen also in the future, depending on the conditions inside the Earth. And I think we discussed some of the co- consequences of this. Rock R.V. says, Could you please tell us about the Bodhiana Shrota Sutra controversy? So, yeah, interesting, interesting. The Bodhiyana Shrota Sutra is a Vedic text, a late Vedic text. Why do I say it's late Vedic? Because it's part of the Krishna Yajurveda, the black Yajurveda, which is the fourth I think the third or the fourth. Which Veda is it? Let me know in the comments or in the live chat. Uh, The Krishna Yajur Veda. Okay. So it's a late Vedic text. And uh, we don't quite know when it was later written. Clearly more than 2000 years ago. Most likely much before that. But we still don't have a very clear uh, idea of when the Vedic texts were written, uh, the time frames and all that. And I don't want to get into the controversy at all. The dating and all that. (laughs) So what's the controversy about? So, first of all, let's talk about what the text is. The text refers to many things, but one of the passages in the text it de- refers to a, a Vedic king called Amavasu. Okay, He was one of our ancient kings from the, from the late Vedic period. His name was Amavasu. It is said in this text that he migrated in a certain direction and his people are the Gandhari, the Parshu and the Arata. So, let's deal with that. His people, it says, are the Gandhari, the Parshu, and the Arata. So when we talk about the Gandhari or Gandhara people, we understand who they are. They are the people of the far north of India, which is now presently Afghanistan. Historically, it's been part of India and Indian civilization and so on. So when it says his people are the Gandhari, we know it's the people that once lived in present-day Afghanistan. Our people, who are the Parshu. They are the people who live to the west of India the Parshua people, present-day Persians. They were once very closely related to us, even today they are. Uh, So, the Gandhari is Afghanistan, that region. Parshu means today's Persia, and the Arata means most likely Armenia, the, the region of Mount Ararat or something. So, it talks about a migration done by our ancient king, Amavasu. It says his people are the Gandhari, the Parshu and the Arata, which is the people of afghanistan present day persia and most likely the the anatolia armenia region it tells you the geographical extent of his people now the, the controversy was about the direction of the migration which direction did amawasum migrate in and there's this professor you know this german american professor great scholar great indologist or whatever Scholar who knows Sanskrit, and he translated this this text, and in his translation, Amavasu migrates eastwards. Okay, so Michael Witzel translated as an expert the text, and his translation was that Amavasu migrated eastwards. Eastwards. Now, before Michael Witzel, other scholars had also translated this text, and they all translated it to mean in such a way that it, it, it the, their translation was that Amavasu migrated westwards. But Michael Witzel said he migrated eastwards. And then the Indian wonderful historians like Rubila Thapar and others, they jumped upon this new translation by Michael Witzel. And they said, this is proof. This is literary proof of an Aryan invasion or migration into India. Amavasu was an Aryan invader who came from aratha and parshu and gandhar and came into india and this proves the aryan invasion migration tourism picnic theory yeah so uh, romila thapar you know she he jumped upon this and various other indian court historians darbari historians also started touting this as the definitive literary ev- evidence of an aryan migration at least if not invasion into india yeah. now what happens is that Conrad Elst looked at this he is also a very f- famous a Belgian Indologist and he said what are you talking about Michael Witzel do you understand the ABC's of Sanskrit this is referring to an, a westward migration and then it's been proven beyond doubt that Michael Witzel was fabricating the evidence the text the Sanskrit texts, text clearly unambiguously, refers to a westward migration of the king Amavasu. So what actually the text is saying is that Amavasu, an ancient Indian king, migrated to the west and his people are the Gandhara, the Parshu and the Arata. This is referring to an out of India migration, westward migration into Persia and essentially into Anatolia. Do we know where Anatolia is? Okay, Another opportunity for me to bring out the map, because I love the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. Here it is. So it's referring to, like I said, Gandhara means present-day Afghanistan. Parshu means present-day Persia or Iran. And Arata is most likely the Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia region and eastern Anatolia. So Amavasu migrated all the way over here. And there is a Mount Amasya in, in, in this region. You know, so the name's also kind of it's not conclusive definitive evidence, but it's circumstantial evidence. So the controversy was about Michael Witzel, this wonderful eminent Indologist who tried to fabricate evidence of an Aryan migration into India. He was caught lying. And he has been exposed, and yet he is still thoroughly feted and regarded as an eminent indologist even today, even today. So it tells you that if you do something, if you if you indulge in this sort of academic fraud, as long as you do it, as as long as it is anti-India, it works. You will, it will not hurt your academic career. Yeah. So that's the kind of fabrication that Michael Witzel did. And there were he had to he he paid no, no price for that there were no, no consequences so that's what the controversy was about the Bodhiyana Shraddha Sutra controversy All right. <laughs> next Swapnil says before the emergence of spoken and written language how did human beings communicate with each other what led to the development of language how long did it take for humans to reach that stage in their history. Hashtag Anthropology. So, uh, the first question that would arise is, when did humans start speaking? And we don't have any evidence. We don't have any answer. You ask any historian, any anthropologist, any any archaeologist, whatever, we don't know when the first language appeared or the first speech appeared. The oldest language that we know of today is Vedic Sanskrit. Now, I'm sure lots of people will disagree. Yeah, you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. It's not Sanskrit, it is Hittite or whatever they, they'll say. But the truth is that the oldest language that we know of is Vedic Sanskrit, human language. But clearly that language came from an older language because that's how it always goes. And and anatomically modern humans have, they are, we know that... Our species, Homo sapiens, has existed for roughly 300,000 years, 3 lakh years. The oldest evidence of Homo sapiens, anatomically modern Homo sapiens, is from Jebel Irhud in northern Africa. And that's that evidence is about 300,000 years old. So if those skeletons or bones, artifacts, remains that were discovered represent anatomically modern humans, they would have been able to speak just the way we do. And there is no evidence that they were less intelligent than us. So let's assume that humans were speaking 3 lakh years ago, 300,000 years ago. But it doesn't mean they suddenly started speaking overnight. Maybe they were speaking before that. Maybe our Neanderthal cousins, ancestors, some of them. Some of us may have Neanderthal ancestors. Mostly Indians don't have it, but oral. So maybe our Neanderthal cousins also may have been able to speak. We don't know. So there is nothing when you when you see the human skeletal structure, there is nothing to suggest that there is the capability for speech, the ability to speak, because the voice box is not a bone. It's not a bony structure. It's 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 cartilage and other tissues. So, uh, looking at skeletal evidence, you can't really tell whether a certain individual was capable of speech or not. So, we don't know when speech emerged. And we don't know how human beings uh, communicated before. So, one of the evidences we can look into, how did humans communicate before speech was a thing? Because clearly, beyond a certain time period, I'm sure humans did not have the ability to speak, and there was no language. I mean, look at our closest uh, primate cousins, the chimpanzees, the gorillas, the bonobos, the orangutans, the gibbons, etc. They don't speak. They don't have speech. Yeah? But they do communicate with each other. They do have vocalizations, but they don't have speech. They have voices there, they can make sounds and all, but they don't have speech. So, the close Our closest relatives are the chimpanzees. And they are very close to us, including being very aggressive and warlike. So how do chimpanzees communicate? They have very complex communications. They have very complex social structures, hierarchical social structures, inequality. Oh my God. Oh my God, they have inequality. What shall we do about them? Shall we for them? <laughs> anyway, so they communicate without speech. Look at our second closest Uh, relatives, primate relatives, the gorillas, they also have very complex hierarchical societies and they also have complex and and sophisticated communication despite not being able to speak. So I am sure our ancestors, pre-human ancestors, also would have communicated in similar ways. We have living examples in front of us. Now the question is, uh, what led to the development of language? How long did it take for humans to reach that stage in their history? See, we don't have anything to compare with because we don't have any any other uh, species of animal on the planet that has this ability that we have. Uh, we are the only species, as far as we know, in human in in the on the Earth's history on the Earth's history that has developed the ability to speak. So. If we had another reference point and we could study that, then we could tell that typically it takes this much time for a species to develop the ability to speak. In our case, we don't know. So I don't know what happened and one can only speculate as to what led to this and how long it took. So the best I can tell you is that if we if we look at our closest primate relatives, the gorillas and the chimpanzees, you can see that they can communicate reasonably well and rather you know they can create sophisticated, complex societies, even cultures, based on non-verbal communication. They have sign language, they have body language, uh, there may be other things associated with it, right? Size and all these things matter, and they also have vocalizations, but non-speech vocalizations and if you see you know you can train gorillas and chimpanzees to to do sign language and they can actually s- form sentences and 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 uh, and communicate complex thoughts including abstract thoughts you know there was this gorilla coco i think her name was coco it was a female gorilla uh, she left behind a message for humans when she was on her deathbed take care of the of the earth and be kind and things like that I mean, that's almost like, that. that's what a human being would say, you know. So even though they cannot speak like us, they have thoughts that are in some way similar to ours. So that's what I can say. We don't know what led to the development of language. I think um, one of the factors that could lead to the development of language is increased cranial capacity, means increased intelligence. Uh, that's that's one thing. So I think maybe it, it would happen once you reach a certain stage in in your cranial development and you find other species as well like dolphins and and killer whales, orcas. Orcas are not actually whales, they are actually dolphins, the largest dolphin species. So orcas and regular dolphins, they also have complex uh, uh, communication abilities. They, They vocalize, they have songs and they have they, they almost, it's almost like this peak, you know, <laughs> and even whales, they have whale songs and whale communications. So it's a very interesting and complex topic. And we don't have the answers. We don't have the answers. But yeah, I'm sure there's uh, interesting research happening as we speak on this topic right now rodrajit says we all know that indianization of southeast asia happened in a very peaceful manner and southeast asian people willingly adopted indian culture but why did they do it did they consider indian culture superior just like we consider western culture superior and try to adopt it as much as we can so today what's happening is that people are kind of aping western culture in eastern countries you you go to you know towns and villages in Africa and you take pictures of children and they'll make these signs and symbols which are, you know these hand signs and all that which they don't even know what it means but they're just trying to be cool and, and they're trying to ape what uh, what they see on on the small screen or the big screen no Western people doing that. They have no idea what it means, but they just try to do that to appear cool. Similarly, if a culture is made to look cool, everybody wants to emulate that and ape that. So what's happening in India right now, especially among the, among the youngsters, is they're blindly aping what they think looks cool. Because they want to look cool. It's not that that culture is superior, but it has been made to look cool. Uh, now, the, yeah, so that's that point. Now, why did the Southeast Asian uh, nations, peoples, uh, adopt Indian culture? They did not adopt Indian culture wholesale. They absorbed elements of Indian culture and practices into their own way of life. So what we see today, let's say in Cambodia or Vietnam or Indonesia, etc., Thailand, Burma, Laos, all that, we see a syncretic culture. Take the example of Japan. Let's take an extreme example to the extreme east. Okay, let's go to the map so that we know what we're talking about. So we have India, which is the what dominates Asia overall. You go eastwards, you have Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. Then you have China, you have the Philippines. South, you have Malaysia, Indonesia, all that. Then you have the Koreas. And then you have Japan in the very extreme east of Asia. Now, Japan has a very Indianized culture, whether we realize it or not. Uh, they have this... Uh, And their culture is a beautiful example of syncretic culture. They have their own indigenous Shinto culture, their own system of kami, you know, deities and gods and goddesses and spirits and all that. And that has syncretized with Indian culture. And if you ask any historian, they'll say it is Shinto syncretized with Buddhism. Well, that doesn't quite explain it because every single Indian Hindu god and goddess has a place in Japan. And they all have Japanese names like Binzaiten and Kanjiten or whatever the names are. So what we find in Japan is syncretic culture. Shinto syncretized with Hinduism, Buddhism, with Indian culture. Similarly, that's what happened throughout Eastern Asia. If you go to Burma, Myanmar today, it's what's called a Buddhist country. You go to Thailand today, it's what's called a Buddhist country. But they have very distinctive a very distinctive way of being Buddhist or Hindu. I mean, they they worship all the Hindu gods like Lord Shiva and Lord Ganesh, etc. In Thailand, you will find it everywhere. But it's portrayed as Buddhism. But it also has very distinctive Thai elements. So what happened is the question. So uh, the Indianization of Southeast Asia began maybe 3,000 or so years ago. It began with the voyages of merchants from Eastern India to these places which part of eastern india kalinga now known as odisha odisha so it began with the journeys of merchants from odisha across the the ocean indian ocean and they started uh, trading with southeast asia and that's how the first contact happened eventually you had these the the foundation of various Indianized kingdoms like the Funan Kingdom and other kingdoms all across Southeast Asia and we know there was no violence, there was no military conquest until a thousand years ago, the Chola Conquest but that comes very much later in the day, so why did they adopt lots of elements of Indian culture I mean eventually all of Southeast Asia was Hindu, then it became known as Buddhist, I mean Angkor Wat is a Hindu temple, the largest Hindu temple that we know of in the world Indonesia was entirely Hindu The Majapahit uh, phase of Indonesian history is their golden era. The Philippines were a Hindu region and so on. How did this happen? Hinduism never spread through force. It spreads through diffusion, slow diffusion. So maybe it is possible that they may have considered Indian culture superior because Indians had this technology, they could travel vast distances on 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 ships. The Indians had huge ships, uh, very sophisticated ships, and maybe Indians from of that time, unlike today's Indians, were much more cultured and refined, when and better behaved. Perhaps our ancestors, right? And so, overall, they must have appeared very cultured, very refined, very superior mm-hmm. in some ways. You Not know, very well behaved, very kind. And maybe this made an impression over centuries and maybe people started trying to emulate that. And obviously, when you're wealthy, people want to emulate that, your your customs. The main reason why everybody wants to ape the West today is because the West is so prosperous. They have acquired a, all the wealth of the world in the past 500 years. And they And when you have so much wealth and everything is well-organized, you obviously appear superior and people want to try to emulate you. So India was that in the past. India accounted for, 2,000 years ago, Angus Madison's research tells us that India accounted for at least a third of the world's GDP. And actually, it most likely accounted for more. So maybe 3,000 years ago, India would have accounted for half the world's GDP. It's very possible. So when you are that rich, that prosperous, you have high technology, and you are so cultured and refined and civilized and kind and compassionate and all that, and when you when you have fair trade practices and all those things, in unlike the the banditry that the the British uh, indulged in, then people want to be like you. So I think that was the reason why all these nations slowly over time started absorbing Indian culture, and that's how the entirety of Southeast Asia was Indianized. China was Indianized. Japan was Indianized. Everything was Indianized, and then in the past 1000 years because India fell so drastically because of uh, foreign occupation. That's why Indian influence slowly faded away. And we still have it even, and and still many of these nations still have a lot of Indian influence. Geopolitical Dube says, the US is still a military and economic superpower, but in the development of hypersonic missiles, why is the US behind China and Russia? Why is the U.S. unable to test test hypersonic missiles successfully? And why or how is China leading in this weapons war? Interesting question. So uh, the Americans actually uh, tested the concept of hypersonic technology and they probably developed some form of hypersonic technology in the 1950s itself. 1950s. But then they abandoned the development of this technology because they thought it had no use. Who needs missiles and rockets that that travel so fast? Who needs that? What's the point? So they abandoned the development of this technology at some point in time. Then, in the late, in the in the by the end of the twentieth century, in the beginning of the twenty-first century, I think the, the Russians and the Chinese started uh, uh, researching, doing R and D, research and development of hypersonic technology. And today you have a bunch of Russian. And Chinese hypersonic missiles that essentially are believed to believe to outperform anything the US has. So, for instance, we have seen in the Ukraine conflict like a couple of weeks ago. It's it's happening as you speak, most likely. The Russians are are using this Kinjal missile. It's an air-launched missile that travels at Mach 10, 4.5 kilometers per second, roughly. Imagine a missile that that flies four and a half kilometers every second it's an air launched missile the kinjal and the ukrainians and nato have no response to it they are in no position to shoot down the missile they have made claims okay in in recent weeks that they shot down a couple of kin, a few kinjal missiles that was a joke that's a complete fabrication and see the evidence they are presenting yeah, makes no sense. So, uh, the Kinjal is an unstoppable, unstoppable, unstoppable missile right now. It travels four point five kilometers every second. It's an air launch missile. The Russians also have the Tsirkon missile. It's an anti ship missile that travels approximately three kilometers per second. It's Mark Nine. The Chinese have the Dongfeng missiles. Dongfeng Seventeen, Dongfeng Forty One, Dongfeng Twenty Seven. I think the 17 in the in the in the 40s, 41 have uh hypersonic glide vehicles, HGVs at the tip, you know. So these are ICBMs or IRBMs, intercontinental or intermediate ballistic missiles, intermediate range ballistic missiles, which are equipped with hypersonic glide vehicles. So the Chinese and the Russians have somersaulted the Americans in the development of hypersonic technology. The Americans are now trying to catch up with this, you know, the Americans have this long-range hypersonic weapon that they are testing and they are developing right now. It's supposed to be you know, operational this year or something. We don't know what, Quite we don't quite know what the status is. They had the AGM 183 or something which failed. That was uh There was a project that they were working on. I think it failed. It was canceled. They had various hypersonic air breathing weapons and they had hypersonic attack cruise missiles. I don't know what the exact... They had something called Sci-Fire. So the Americans were developing... They were working on a number of hypersonic uh, programs trying to play catch up with Russia and China. We don't quite know what the situation is. But the Americans were the pioneers of this technology. I think the first tried it out or tested it in the 1950s. So there is no reason why they cannot in the next couple of years you know, catch up with the Chinese. My question is, what is India doing? We have the Brahmos, which is a supersonic missile, Mach 2. Mach 2 is nothing compared to Mach 9 and Mach 10. So India needs to not be left behind and this is one of the lessons of the Ukraine war. Right, so that's the deal. So the Americans kind of were complacent and that's why they fell behind. Now they're trying to catch up as fast as possible. They have the... They have the means to do this. They have the 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 experts mm-hmm. and they have the military-industrial complex that can get this done. So it's essentially for the US a question of time about when they catch up with the Russians and the Chinese. And maybe they may have already done that and they may have not announced it. Yeah, So that is the deal. Nilay says, we humans have nuclear submarines, nuclear aircraft carriers, but why no nuclear space rockets? We can go much faster and further into space with these rockets. Why is no country work? Why ha, why does no country have working nuclear rockets until now? Mm-hmm. Well, do you know the nuclear? See, one of the reasons why we don't use mostly nuclear propulsion. In missiles and rockets is because when the missile let's say let's talk about missiles first. A missile is designed to crash, right? And destroy the target. If you have nuclear propulsion, it's gonna cause nuclear pollution, nuclear fallout. So that's that's something nobody wants. And yet the Russians have such a missile. So the Russians had announced, I think, in 2018 or 2019, I think 2018. A nuclear-powered cruise missile. Let's let's put that on the screen. Check it out. Russia reveals unstoppable nuclear-powered cruise missile. What it means is that this missile has nuclear propulsion. Most missiles, if not all, have chemical rockets, chemical propulsion. But this missile has nuclear propulsion. It is essentially it essentially has unlimited range so this has been done let me show you something else so it is definitely possible to uh, you know have a rocket that's powered by nukes so this is something that the americans did uh, you know try out here's the here's a documentary about this to mars by a bomb the secret history of project orion top scientists wanted to build a nuclear bomb-powered spaceship to visit Mars and the planets. And people like Arthur C. Clarke and Freeman Dyson were involved in this project. And it actually works. The concept works. So it can be done. We already have a nuclear-powered cruise missile. And we can have nuclear bomb-powered rockets so essentially these rockets will be extremely large extremely massive and they will be powered by what what we could regard as tactical nuclear warheads so you explode a tactical nuclear warhead it will it will impel the rocket upwards then you explode one more then one more then one more that's what you do it you will but that will cause a lot of radioactive fallout you know as long as the rocket is in the earth's atmosphere but yeah, it certainly works. It it The concept is very feasible. Nobody has actually made it. So this, this thing that I showed you to Mars by A-bomb, they tried this out with conventional explosives and it works. But they did not actually use the larger scale version with nuclear explosives. But it can certainly work. The only reason, so there are a couple of reasons why people may not have done this. First of all, it's very expensive. You don't want to use up your nuclear warheads for this kind of thing. And secondly, it, can, it, it will cause radioactive fallout. When you explode a nuclear weapon, it's going to release radioactive material into the atmosphere. So that is radioactive pollution, radioactive fallout. And that is something nobody wants. Thirdly, if something goes wrong and the rocket crashes, all that nuclear fuel, etc. will be spilled either on the ground or in the atmosphere. And that's, again, a, a radiological disaster. So these are the reasons why it has never really been done. But the Russians have a nuclear-powered cruise missile, and this sort of large-scale nuclear-propelled rocket can certainly be built. And the, the technology more or less exists for doing that. Okay, two questions. Mazar Chachar says, what are the key factors behind the recent clashes between Afghanistan and Iran along their shared border and how might these incidents impact their bilateral relations moving forward? And Ronak says, there's recent news about the Taliban fighting against the Iran military. How does Iran perceive the Taliban? What's the conflict between Iran and Taliban all about? Okay, interesting question. It's about water. Let's take a look at the geography. Okay, let's take a look at the geography. Um, 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 let's put the map on the screen as always here is the map, let's remove this thing over here, so we are in our own neighborhood, Afghanistan, Iran now there is a very famous river in Afghanistan this is the Farah river, I'm looking for another one is it which river is it, is it this one the Hetumant this is the Hanut. Which river am I looking at? This is the Helmand. This is the river behind the entire matter. So today this river is called the Helmand. In the past, let's say 2000 years ago, it was called the Hetumant river. And even before that it was called the Setumant or Setuband river in Sanskrit. It means a river on which there is a dam or a bridge. A dam most likely. So in the ancient days when Afghanistan was still Gandhar, our ancestors had dammed this river and they called it the Setuband or Setuband river. Eventually it came to be known as the Hetuband and now it's called the Hel- Helmand. So this river, it flows in through most of Afghanistan but then it drains into what was once a lake here in Iran. I don't remember the name of this lake. And if you look at the satellite imagery, there's no lake here anymore. Mm-hmm. So the past 20 or 30 years, this lake has been dry. This lake received its water from the, Hetu, from the Helmand River, which is which passes through Afghanistan, which is controlled by Afghanistan. And Afghanistan has dams on this river. Now, the so Iran wants Afghanistan to release sufficient water into Sistan Balochistan of Iran so that this region can be irrigated and there's there's a, there's an agreement i think it dates back to 1973 or something between afghanistan and, and iran which stipulates that afghanistan must release a certain amount of water into iran while retaining the ability to you know build uh, dams and all that on the river so the iranian government is saying that the afghans are not releasing they are not uh, abiding by the agreement and they are not releasing the amount of water they are supposed to into iran and which is why the the lake has dried out and there's essentially been this has turned into a desert and so that's that's a dispute it's a water dispute and i think in 2021 or something the a, a, a new dam was built a new dam i think it was it's called the kamal khan dam or something the afghans built a new dam there and that's again one of the issues that has called something that's that's. Uh, exacerbated the issue now uh, so that's what is causing the current tensions between uh, iran and the afghanistan government the taliban government so let's take a look at some images that the taliban tweeted out yeah so there is this funny account it's called the taliban public relations department commentary it's on twitter now it's clearly not an official account of the taliban and it's kind of a humorous account. It's not. I would not regard this exactly as a parody account, because the pictures that they post, nobody else has these pictures. Which means it is being done from within the Afghan government. But the tone is very humorous, kind of. So check this out. The Iran. This is from May twenty-two. Today is May twenty-seven. The Iranian delegation met with our minister of water and and agriculture to discuss the water crisis. The discussion became heated after a member of the Iranian delegation insulted the minister. Our heroic minister threatened him with flogging if he did not calm down. So you can see that they are adopting a humorous tone. But this is a real event. And these pictures are not to be found anywhere else. Let's see this. This afternoon, our masculine border guards met with their Iranian counterparts across our joint border. As both sides approached the border, the Iran general casually stepped over the line to to shake hands and he was quickly captured. We treat border violations very seriously. You can see this image. It is an Iranian general whose hands are tied behind his his back. He is being held by the Taliban personnel. It's a very real image but the tone of the tweet is kind of serious, uh, kind of kind of funny slightly slightly humorous you know dark humor kind of thing and this was tweeted on may 23 right is there anything else yeah one more <laughs> this is may 24 salam alaikum our foreign minister had a visit from the chinese ambassador this morning he has offered to resolve the water dispute with iran and is scheduled to fly to tehran this afternoon our message to the iranians is stiff and straight Calm down brothers. So there is something brewing here. This may or may not be an official or unofficial Taliban account, but what they are tweeting is very real. And these images you will not find anywhere else. So that's one thing. So that is one source that we can look at. Something is brewing. The the situation is not very, very happy, very, very calm. There are tensions on the border. Let's see another one. This is an Iranian Twitter account. Iran International English the iranian president's warning to kabul over iran's water share from the Her- hirmand okay they call it the hirmand hirmand river has been mocked by a famous member of taliban known as general mobin who is seen in this video offering president raisi a gallon of water from the river take this and don't attack us we are terrified so in this video the taliban guy takes a yellow gallon container of water from the river and he offers it to Iran, says, please don't attack us, we are terrified of you. You know what this signifies? The Taliban suicide bombers are infamous for wearing yellow jackets or yellow something. So it is, this this video, it serves to mock the Iranians, make fun of them, and also it implicitly threatens them. That's what this is. That is the significance of this yellow bucket or container or whatever it is it's it's an implied threat to iran so as you can see relations are not good between iran and afghanistan there are there is tension brewing between these two nations it's about water the iranians are demanding that the afghans release more water the afghans are saying that there is drought what it's not raining and we don't have enough water then that's why your lake is drying out the iranians are saying we are not stupid we have scientists. We, we we have meteorologists. We know what's happening. You are deliberately withholding water from us, our fair fear of water. That is what's happening. It's a water dispute. And the Taliban seems to be very confident. They're kind of mocking the Iranians. Uh, so, as you can see, Iran and Afghanistan are not quite getting along. That's the deal. How does Iran perceive the Taliban? I expect that the, the Iranians are happier with the taliban than the previous regime which was a us puppet regime but they still seem to consider the taliban to be kind of a nuisance <laughs> that seems to be the kind of uh, thing there is you know and and recently president raisi of iran of iran had kind of threatened the taliban he had, he had used what we could call robust language uh, with respect to this this crisis and the iranians are uh, the, the taliban are retaliating in in this mocking fashion. So that's the interesting situation that we are seeing uh, the develop, developments between Iran and Afghanistan. Okay, let's see how many more questions we can take. Saurabh says, What is the Zen, Zend Avesta? When was it composed? Is it contemporary with the Vedas? Uh, there, Why are there priests known as Arta Arthvana. Is there any connection with Atharvaveda? Okay. They, okay, so they there the priests, the Zoroastrian priests are not called Arth, whatever this is, they're called Atharvan. Athar Athravan, or something like that. Let me go to the Encyclopedia Iranica and show it to you what, what their priests are called. Just give me a second. And I'll get to this Avesta as well. So yeah, this is it, Athravan. This symbol over here that you see on the screen is the Theta, the Greek Theta, Theta, Theta. So this is pronounced as Athravan, Athravan. So that's the pronunciation, that's that's what they called their priests, the Zoroastrian priests. Mm -hmm. So what was the Zend Avesta? It was uh, their holy text, the Zoroastrian holy text, holiest text, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and how old is it it's it's maybe 3,000 years old maybe 3,500 years old we don't quite know when Zarathustra lived uh, so because you know all the records of Iran's history were destroyed after or during the Arabian Arabic invasion of Iran some 1, thirteen fourteen hundred 1400 years ago so all the texts were destroyed so we don't know when Zarathustra actually lived let's say 3,000 or 3,500 years ago roughly maybe perhaps. So in that case, that's how old the Zend Avesta is. It is there the holy text or the holiest text of the Zoroastrian religion. And uh, it has a section called the Gathas, which is a term we all understand in India as well. Gatha means Katha, stories, uh, which deals with his life, the life of Zarathustra. So that's what it was. Was it contemporary with the Vedas? I don't think so. It most likely came after the Vedas. Uh, so that's what it is. The priests were called Atravan. And is there any connection with the Atharvaveda? Maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. See, India and Persia were... Persia was a, was a daughter civilization of India. And today the Persians, many Persians look very different from Indians. Don't they? There are many Persians who look almost like Europeans. You will find a certain small percentage of Persians, Iranians, who have blue or green eyes and blonde hair and skin that looks like, you know, the skin of Europeans, white skin. That's not how the original Iranians looked. The original Iranians had light brown skin, dark eyes and dark hair. They would kind kind of look like me, kind of. Kind of. But why do Iranians look so, why do some Iranians look very different today? It's because when the Turkic, you know Nadir Shah who invaded India and slaughtered 100,000 people in one day in Delhi, he was the king of Iran, right? He was a Turk. So his dynasty, his father and him and that time period, that's when lots of individuals were settled in Iran from the Caucasus region. Let me show you the Caucasus region in case... uh, in case we need to look at that. Where's the map? Okay, here's the map. So the the Caucasus region is the Kavkaz region. It's the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. The Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia region, Dagestan, Chechnya, all that, which is now part of Russia. That's north of Iran. Iran regards that as Greater Iran. But the people who live there, in the Caucasus region, ethnically, they are not Persians. They are most likely the descendants of maybe ancient Scythians. One of the languages spoken in this region is called the Iran language. which And the Ossetian language is also spoken there. These languages are offshoots of the ancient, extinct Scythian language. The Scythians originally were Indian, by the way. That's a whole different story. We'll not go there. But uh, the region of the Caucasus region, the people are ethnically, essentially they are European. You know, the Caucasian so-called race It was named after the people who lived in this region. Who live in this region. The original Iranians looked like the people of Afghanistan and Western India. Today you have a complete mixing of people. So there are lots of Iranians who have Turkic ancestry now. Azerbaijani ancestry. And there are lots of Iranians who have uh, the ancestry of the people of Caucasus. That's why Iran is kind of a mixed race population today. But ancient Iran looked very different. I mean... We still have people who look like the ancient Iranians today in Iran, but that's, 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 that's the thing. So, uh, coming back to the Zendavista, it was most likely, most probably written after the Vedas. And uh, yeah, there, there obviously could be some connection with the Atharva Veda. And the, the words are very similar because the old Persian language was like an upper branch version of Sanskrit, it was like an upper branch dialect, dialect of Sanskrit, it was like, like a Prakrit language. That's what it was wiseman1234 says my question is usa is trying to regime change okay the us is trying to instigate or engineer a regime change operation in bangladesh is it for india or to check on china okay so what evidence do we have of this let's let's uh and blinken let's take a look at anthony blinken's twitter account who is anthony, Bl- anthony blinken he is the Secretary of State of the United States. What that means is that he is their Foreign Minister. Okay, let's let's find his Twitter account. Where is this guy? Here he is. This is his Twitter account. So, May 24, he tweets this. He says, Today I announced a new visa policy to promote free and fair elections. Full stop. Under this policy, we can impose visa restrictions on individuals and their immediate family members if they are responsible for or complicit in undermining the democratic election process in Bangladesh. My question to the United States is, what business do you have interfering in the democratic electoral process of a sovereign nation? Who appointed you to be the moral guardians of the world? But that's what they do. Because they have the force, they have the, they have the powers, they feel they can do anything. So essentially, and you will see other tweets by Americans and, and Western people who are accusing... Uh, uh, what's the lady? She, Sheikh Hasina of being uh, a, di- a dictator. So the thing is, she has been winning elections and they don't like it. The thing, why do they not like her? Is It's because she has a pro-India policy under her leadership, under her government, relations between India and Bangladesh have improved significantly. So that is something the Americans are not happy about. They, If you look at the past 70, 80 years of, it, of, of history, the Americans have always sought to destabilize India. They financed and funded Pakistani terrorism and other activities against India for decades. The Americans did that. Now Pakistan is a spent force. Pakistan is, is nothing much more than nuisance value for us. So they want to create new fronts. One is Bangladesh. So as long as uh, this lady, Sheikh Hasina, is in power in Bangladesh, we're going to have stable and good relations overall with Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. But if an anti-India force like Zia comes to power, then they can use that. So if they, if they engineer an election thing, and bring this person, Khalid Azia, to power, then she will be beholden to them. She will be essentially their vassal, their puppet, and they can and, and they will give her some benefits, you know, good money or whatever it is, and they can use her and her government to create such an, certain situations and all that on India's eastern flank. And it's very critical because a significant portion of what we call the northeast of India, which is actually the far east of India, is abutted by Bangladesh. Let's take a look at the map in case your geography uh, syllabus did not cover this tripura mizoram uh, meghalaya all of this and assam of course you know so you can create lots of trouble lots of problems in india's far east if you have an anti india government in bangladesh now understand this the us does not want india to rise too much it seeks to help india in certain in, in certain ways as long as it serves their objective of containing China but it also seeks to counter India and to hamper India's rise in a whole lot of different areas. So that's the kind of policy, dual policy that the Americans have vis-a-vis India. They are now beginning to see India as a potential long-term competitor and they don't want to make the same mistake they did with China. They aided and abetted China's rise. They midwifed China's rise to almost, you know, Superpower in waiting status. They don't want to make the same mistake with India. So they want to encircle India, create regime change operations, maybe in Nepal, maybe in Bangladesh. They already have Pakistan on their side. And, you know, create trouble all around. Keep India off balance at all times. And, and ideally, they would want a new government, in India, a different government in India in 2024. So that's the kind of game the Americans are playing. So this has nothing to do with China. This is targeted at India. Squarely at India, and it's becoming clear that the Americans want a regime change in Bangladesh now. Big, big trouble if that happens for India, you know. Okay, Samartha says, How does Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey view Ataturk, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, and why is Ataturk shown as Turkey's Gandhi? And was Kemal more pro-US and pro-NATO? Who is better from India's perspective, Erdogan or Kemal Atatürk? Firstly, Atatürk died in 1938. NATO was formed in 1952. So there is no question of Atatürk being pro-NATO because NATO did not even exist even as an idea at the time that Atatürk died, 1938. So Atatürk was not pro-NATO. NATO never existed. That's number one. Number two, was Ataturk pro-U.S.? No, he was not pro-U.S. He liberated his country from Western occupiers in 1923. There was a two, three year Turkish war of independence. At the end of the First World War, see what happened in World War I is that Turkey took the side of Germany. And Germany and the German, the, the powers allied with Germany, they lost. So Turkey also lost and Turkey was partitioned. It was Balkanized. Some parts of Turkey were given to some European power, another one to another power, that sort of thing happened. So Turkey was like chopped up and and parceled out to various Western powers. And it's in this situation that Ataturk, the great military general, perhaps the greatest military general general the Turks have seen in several centuries, he stepped into the the fray. He started a guerrilla war from this remote stronghold in Anatolia called Ankara, which is now the capital, he fought not only the western occupying powers, he fought his own Ottoman Sultan, the last caliph. And he defeated them all, he ousted them all from Turkey, and he created a sovereign nation of Turkey. So he fought the west, multiple times. He, <laughs> he foiled Winston Churchill's 1915, I think it was the year, that the plan to take the Dardanelles, the Gallipoli invasion, it was one man who defeated the West. It was Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who was then an unknown uh, you know, military commander. So uh, he spent his time, his life, his military career fighting the West. And the US is part of the West. But after he was able to liberate Turkey and transform it into a a sovereign nation he embarked upon a process of westernization. What he did is that he secularized, he forcibly secularized Turkey. Imagine the strength of will it would have taken to take a nation like Turkey and secularize it thoroughly. He banned the hijab and the parda and the the burqa and all that for women. he banned the participation of, of religious Islamic clergy in the government. He uh, he emancipated women. He gave them equal rights as men. That was unthinkable. You know? And he he tried his best to modernize Turkey. And within his lifetime, by the time he died, Turkey was a totally transformed nation. He, he banned the Arabic and the Persian uh, script. You know, the, 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 the right-to-left script. He said that uh, that we don't have our own script, but we will use the modified version of the Latin script to write the Turkish language. We will no longer use the Arabic or the Persian script. So he totally transformed Turkey. One man through sheer force of will did this. And he died in 1938. Now, a certain section of Turkish society was left behind in this process, Overall, over time. He wanted the entirety of the Turkish nation to embrace this change. But the a certain section was left behind, which was the deeply conservative people. And they are the ones who never liked, who who have not, who don't like Ataturk. And when it comes to Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he comes from that background. So, if you look at his political party, which came to power in 2002, 2003, somewhere around there, they have never extolled the virtues of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Erdogan until recently never even took the name of Atatürk. The word Atatürk is a title. It means father of the Turks. It's not an actual surname. Atatürk also made this happen. He insisted, he, he mandated that every Turkish person must have a surname. Historically, traditionally, the Turks did not have surnames. They only had first names. So his name was Mustafa. Then his teacher because he was great at mathematics, gave him the name Kemal, which means excellent in Arabic. So he became Mustafa Kemal. And after he mandated that every Turk should have a surname, the people of Turkey insisted that Mustafa Kemal should take the surname Ataturk, which means father of Turks. And he accepted. So... uh, that's how he got this name. So Erdogan, until very recently, did not even utter the word, the name Ataturk from his mouth. So they don't like him. They the, the His political party doesn't like him. Erdogan's entire political plank is going back to traditional Ottoman values and going back to, to being an Islamic nation. And the entire focus of Ataturk was the opposite. To abolish the caliphate, to move past the Ottoman era. And to he tried to move past Islam as well. That's what Ataturk did. He tried to genuinely secularize the nation. So Erdogan is trying to take the nation in, the, in exactly the opposite direction. So, so Erdogan does not like Ataturk. His political movement is anti-Ataturk. But just like India's politicians have to kind of pay lip service or more to Mr. Gandhi. Similarly, in Turkey, you know they they are forced to not be harshly critical or or even slightly critical of Atatürk. They are forced to to recognize him as the father of the nation. But Kemal Atatürk cannot be regarded as, as as Turkey's Gandhi. Mustafa Kemal Atatürk won independence and sovereignty for his country. Through, through force. He forced the occupiers out of Turkey. He booted them out through military force and then he transformed Turkey according to his vision. Mr. Gandhi did the exact opposite of that. I will not go into that right now. So it is completely incorrect to, to even compare Mustafa Kemal Ataturk with Mohandas Gandhi. I could do a comparison video about that and I think it will be I wonder what comments I'll get when I do that, if I do that. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Swarup says, Germany has officially entered into a recession. What would be the outcome of this for India? How likely is India to enter a recession? First, India has 0% likelihood of entering a recession. Look at any economic, financial uh, you know analysis. Of all the nations... India is the only nation that has a 0% chance of entering a recession. India is the only bright spot in the global economy. India is going to keep on growing as an economy for the next two, three decades minimum, as long as we have the right leadership. It's going to keep growing well. India is the only nation that has a chance of surpassing the United States as the world's largest economy in this century. That's like 30, 40 years from now, perhaps. Maybe 30. Perhaps, okay? I'm not making any, any projection of a time frame. So India has no chance of entering a recession. Germany has now officially entered a recession. Its GDP growth is negative. What does this mean for India? Overall, Germany is the economic engine that has powered Western Europe. And if Germany enters a recession, it's going to you know, be bad for the entirety of Europe. When a nation is in recession, it's it becomes... Its people become financially conservative. They stop spending so much. They start saving. They stop consuming. No extra expenditure. No going out for to a restaurant twice a week or once a week. No splurging on entertainment. We will not watch three movies this month. We'll watch only one movie or maybe no movies. So you cut down on your expenditure. We'll not buy any luxury items. We'll not buy that new um, laptop or new iPhone or whatever it is. Right? When this happens. The nations that export such products face problems because there are fewer buyers of these things. So when it comes to make in India, we want to manufacture stuff in India and we want to export it to the world. We want to replace China as the world's manufacturing hub, right? So if the rest of the world is entering a recession, I'm not saying the whole world is, right now it's Germany, but, you know, recession is like a disease. It it kind of spreads. It's kind of contagious. So it... It could slow down to some extent India's economic growth as well, which is why recession in any part of the world is not good for the rest of the world. So uh, overall, it, India should be careful. India should, should keep a very close eye on this. Of on what's happening in Europe, there is the Ukraine war that's happening, which has been precipitated by relentless NATO expansion eastwards. Russia were left with no choice but to do this; otherwise, they would be in like you know existential crisis for them. Uh, but now the Americans have blown up that whoever, I mean, whoever has blown it up has blown it up. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So that cheap, plentiful gas that was driving Russian gas, the cheap, plentiful Russian gas that was driving the economic engine of Europe has now dried out, dried up. Now the Europeans have are, are being forced to import gas from the United States at three times the price. That is going to destroy your economy. And that's what's happening now. So uh German, Germany's economy is going in decline, it's, it's in recession now. I hope other nations don't follow suit, but yeah, if there is recession in Europe, if this contagion spreads and the whole of Europe goes into recession, America's economy is also not doing well. If this happens, it's not good for India. you know So that's the thing. It means that it, it will end up slowing down India's economic growth as well. So unless you're a nation that exports raw materials, if, if you're a nation that exports oil and gas and coal and iron ore and stuff like that, then you can keep on doing this. Even then, a recession can can hamper your output. But if you're exporting finished products, then it's going to hurt you a little bit more, maybe a lot more. So overall, it, it's, it's concerning for India. That's what I would say. Saurabh says, what's the okay the, the egyptian the iranian the mesopotamian scripts and the harappan script the former three scripts were deciphered but why has the latter one not been the later latter one not been deciphered okay so the egyptian script has been deciphered the the iranian or persian cuneiform script has been deciphered the mesopotamian cuneiform script has been deciphered but why has the harappan script not been deciphered that's the question so how was the uh, the egyptian hieroglyphic script deciphered. It was deciphered through the fortuitous discovery of the Rosetta Stone which had the same inscription in three different scripts. And I think one of the scripts was known. So that's how they were able to decipher the other one. And that's how the Egyptian hieroglyphic script was deciphered. How was the Iranian, Persian cuneiform script deciphered? So for a long time, it stumped everybody. They had no clue as to how to decipher the script, then somebody hit upon a bright idea. What if the old Persian language was similar to Sanskrit? Let's assume it is Sanskrit and let's try to make sense of this. Once they made this assumption, it started falling into place because the old Persian language was essentially an of form of Sanskrit. Right? You you read the Behistun Bhagasthana inscription of, of Emperor Daraya, Daraya Vaush it sounds like a slightly weird version of Sanskrit. You can actually understand much of what is written even today. If you speak Hindi or any other Indo-Aryan language, so-called Indo-Aryan language, you will understand significant parts of the, of the Bhagastana inscription. So they assumed that maybe the old Iranian language may have been like Sanskrit and that's how they were able to decipher the cuneiform Persian script. And similarly, there's a similar story with the uh, other one, Mesopotamian script. The Harappan script, nobody has tried seriously to decipher it because once the script is deciphered, the entire Aryan, Dravidian thing will be, you know, the truth will be known so the proponents of the aryan invasion migration tourism picnic whatever theory it is they keep on insisting that the so called harappan or, or the, the saraswati sindhu script is it represents an ancient dravidian language there are individuals like Iravatan mahadevan mm-hmm. who came up with an extraordinarily ridiculous decipherment that nobody takes seriously even the the uh, the proponents of the aryan invasion migration thing even they don't take his decipherment seriously. How did he imagine? I mean, I've gone through his work. The PDFs are available online. My goodness, how did he imagine that this symbol means this? How? There has to be some logic, right? That everybody can understand. There's no logic. He invented this decipherment. So, so the claim that is made by the proponents of the Aryan Migration Tourism uh, theory is that the Saraswati Sindhu script represents a Dravidian language, a so-called Dravidian language. The Dravidian language family is an imaginary language family dreamt dreamt up by by our colonial uh, occupiers. So once this script is properly deciphered, we will know for sure which language it encodes. A script is a vehicle. It's not a language. For instance, you can write Sanskrit in the Devanagari script, in the Brahmi script, in the Kharoshti script, in the Tib- Tibetan script, in the in the in the Mongolian uh, Swayambhu script, in the in the Cambodian script, in the Tamil script. So a script is merely a vehicle, it is not a language. Right? So once we decipher the Saraswati Sindhu script, we will be able to read what is written there and i think one of the prime reasons why they are not trying to decipher it seriously is they are afraid of what language will emerge out of it yeah so that's why but i i think uh, somebody recently i don't know the real name of the person his name he or she's name is yajnadevam on twitter they uh, i still haven't studied their work properly but they say that they have deciphered it and it, they say it's sanskrit written in Sanskrit. So I'll I'll have to spend some time and look into this, you know. So yeah. So that's why those scripts were deciphered and this one they have tried their best not to decipher it. Okay, we are reaching the two-hour mark. I need to take one or two questions more. Swapnil says, after a massive asteroid collided with our planet, resulting in a substantial loss of material in the formation of our moon, How did the Earth regain its spherical shape over time? Additionally, do all the planets in our solar system have the same round shape as depicted in pictures and textbooks? See, yeah, one of the prime theories, one of the main theories about how the Moon was formed is that there was an ancient protoplanet in the very early solar system that collided with the Earth. It was most likely a glancing collision. A huge amount of material was ejected out of the surface of the earth because of this collision and it it uh, went into orbit around the around the earth eventually coalesced and formed the moon so it was a cataclysmic collision if this theory is correct which formed the moon so when such a collision would happen between the earth and a slightly smaller pr- uh, protoplanet the entire Earth's surface would be molten as a consequence of this enormous collision it would be a hell it would be all lava So it's liquid. So it very rapidly because of gravity will will form a new spherical shape. Very easy. Very easy answer. Right? So that's how it would have happened. Do all the planets in our solar system have the same spherical shape? That's a question. Okay, let me uh, Google something. Howmea. H-A-U-M-E-A. Howmea is a once Neptunian object. It's, It's a dwarf planet. And take a look at this. This is the only one that does not have a spherical shape. So it's in the Kuiper belt, beyond the orbit of Neptune, and uh, it, 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 the reason for its weird shape. Let's go to the Wikipedia article. Okay, let's see what it looks like. Okay, this thing. Check it out. How does this look? So this uh, dwarf planet, it it rotates very rapidly. It takes less than four hours to, to complete a, f- a single rotation. And that's because of this incredible rotational speed. That's why it has this weird elongated shape. It also has a couple of rings around it. Can you believe it? So as far as I know, this is the only uh, object, you know, dwarf planet or anything else in the solar system that has a non-spherical shape. Very interesting, very interesting. Uh what is the zombie fungus that takes over insects through mind control and turns them into zo- zombies? I think it's called the Cordyceps fungus. So this fungus, it it uh, enters the insect's body through the spores that the fungus produces, and then it, it 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 hijacks the nervous system of the insect and forces this insect to do things that are beneficial for the fungus, not for the insect. It makes the insect go on a high branch or something and sit over there then the fungus consumes the insect from inside and then uses the insect's body to release spores that will further the process of reproduction so yeah it it hijacks the nervous system of the of the insect it only happens to insects as far as we know it doesn't happen to mammals but yeah it's nice material for a horror story horror movie so uh, it's called the cordyceps fungus Kinsuk says, "Do you like zombie and virus movies? Your top five <laughs> zombie movies. Uh, zombie movies? Yeah, I've i uh, I like watching movies. I've seen a bunch of zombie movies. I can think of a movie, a good movie called Twenty Eight Days Later. It's it's set in London, England, I believe. There is a funny movie called Shown of the Dead of, of the Dead. That's again set in England. I think there is World War Z, Brad Pitt. That's a good movie. Resident Evil with Mila Jovic. That's a good movie. It's about zombies as well." and 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 a super intelligent computer as well. Uh, there is Zombieland featuring uh, Woody Harrelson. And of course, the movie that started it all, Night of the Living Dead. I think it was the 1970s or 1980s. Most likely 1970s, maybe even 1960s. Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of zombie movies. Enjoy, some of them are enjoyable. Some of them are very predictable and boring. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun genre if it is done right. Okay, I have many more questions. But I will take some questions from the live chat now. Maybe two, three questions. Two, three questions from the live chat. Let's take a look. Okay, sir. Okay, sir, rising sun. <laughs> shawl of the dead was so boring. Yeah, yeah, okay. I saw it, like I don't know, a long, long time ago. I found it funny at the time. Maybe if I see it again, I may find it kind of boring. Who knows? Uh, see, these things are subjective. Okay, Ramai Raj Singh says, Indian city planning is atrocious. Which country or model can modern-day India take inspiration from? I would say that modern India needs to take inspiration from the city planning that was done in the Saraswati Sindhu region 5,000, 5, 6,000 years ago. If you look at the kind of town planning, city planning we had in Harappa, Kalibangan, Kalimangan, uh, Rakigari, all these cities, even the small towns, it was brilliant very well planned. Cities were laid out in a grid structure. Every house was connected to a drainage system. The drainage system still works. Last year, there were floods in Pakistan, temporarily Pakistan. And you know, it was reported in in the news that the whole, much of Pakistan was flooded, but in the city of Mohenjo-Daro, in the city of Mohenjo-Daro, the flood waters were drained out by the 5,000 year old drainage system. So, we should take inspiration from our own past. We came up with the concept of a grid system of tra- town, of city planning. We had incredibly well-planned cities 5,000 years before anybody else in the West even dreamt of that. So that's what we need to take inspiration from. Modern inspiration should take inspiration. Modern India should take inspiration from the past, of India itself, from our own past. Giuseppe Fraya says, what do you think about today's hyper hyposexual society and the sexual degeneracy that's plaguing our human consciousness? I think it's all coming from one nation in the West, which is the United States. Everything is about sex over there. They have 78 genders or 300 genders, but only two political inclinations. How does that work? You know, you're either with me or you're a Nazi. You're either on my side or you're a fascist. So they see politics in black and white. Only two political inclinations. But genders are about 600-700 genders. And everything is about sex over there. Everything. It's crazy. Everything is so superficial. So it's a huge problem and and they are now trying to export it worldwide. Their so-called values and culture. They have no values and no culture. So it's a huge problem. I would urge non western even i mean i would i would urge everybody look we are all the we are all sharing this planet this east and west divide it's all artificial we all have the same ancestors you go back 100000 years we all have the same ancestors whether we black white brown whatever right we are the same people we are in this together We need to stop uh, creating these artificial divisions and all. And I would urge all right-thinking people with a sane mind to reject this nonsense. 70 million genders and God knows what else. The purpose of human life is... There's more to human life than sex. Right? So, yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's very unfortunate what's happening. And they're trying to export this madness worldwide. Okay, let us see some more, couple more questions. Mingming says, Mingming, hello, Mingming. <laughs> uh, are the people from Arunachal Pradesh Tibetans? Because the sixth Dalai Lama was was from uh, Arunachal Pradesh, and it is said that the Dalai Lama can only be from Tibet. Look, uh, the people of Arunachal Pradesh have a strong affinity of the Tibetan people. Mm-hmm. Culture is to some extent, similar to Tibetan culture, Uh, genetically, ethnically, they may have some affinity with the people of Tibet as well. And you know, borders change. We have to understand one thing, that if you look at the history of the world, if you look at the history of the world through maps, borders are artificial lines that keep on changing and evolving and going up and down, back and forth. So at some point in time, what is now Arunachal Pradesh, some of it was then part of the Kingdom of Tibet. And we know that the 6th sixth, the sixth Dalai Lama was born in Tawang, which is part of Arunachal Pradesh, India. So from that perspective, from our perspective, since the 6th Dalai Lama came from India, well, we can lay claim to Tibet, not the other way around. The Chinese have, nev- have never been the masters of Tibet until 1950 or whatever, right? So, uh, so that's my perspective. Yeah, borders keep changing. And the borders will change in the future as well. Our borders were were drawn by outsiders in 1947. Then our own leaders, through their miscalculations and their naivete, allowed borders to again change in 1948, etc. Again in the 1950s, 1962, and so on. Well, in the future, we will have stronger leaders and things will change again. So that's how it is. So we cannot say this or that. From my perspective, if the sixth Dalai Lama came from India, then the whole of Tibet is is Indian. I can make that claim. The same logic the Chinese use, you know? So, yeah, there is that. Amit Kumar says Should India join NATO plus? No, never, ever, ever, ever. NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Atlantic. Where's the Atlantic Ocean? And, and and even if they expand NATO all the way to the Pacific Ocean, through the Indian Ocean, what advantage does it give India? What benefit does it give India, joining NATO? Do you know the conditions for joining NATO? Do you know why France is, is has never been comfortable with, with NATO? It's because you have to place your military under a centralized command, a NATO command. Are you willing, are you, my dear Indian friends, are you willing to place the Indian armed forces under a centralized NATO command? The answer is very simple. There is no reason for India to join NATO. Um, Harry says, are the Rajputs of other states the same as Rajputs of Rajasthan? Look, this is a, the term Rajput is kind of a new term. It's it's, it's about a thousand or so years old. It means Rajputra. It means you are a member of a uh, royal lineage. That's what it means. Um, <clears throat> so uh, there are traditionally, it, it has traditionally been said that there are 36 royal clans in India, right? That fellow, what's his name, James Todd, also made, put out a list of 36 royal families or royal clans of India. And these are typically taken to be the Rajput lineages. Okay, And this is a n- new term that has existed for roughly a thousand years. If you look at 500 AD or 1500 BC or whatever it is, nobody called themselves Rajputs. But you still had the same lineages most likely the ancient lineages that perhaps sprang from the era of the Vedic era, perhaps. Who knows? Who knows what the story is because we've lost all of our ancient historical records. So, these are all today's Rajput, let's talk about today's Rajput lineages. These most likely descend from those 36 royal clans or whatever it was called and it doesn't mean that they are all the same. I'm sure they will have some kind of connection, you know. Uh, Royal families typically married among other royal families. For example, the, the, the Shindes, Sindias of Gwalior, married with the royal family of Nepal, who are also Rajputs or whatever. So that, that, that sort of thing. So it's not like we are all the same. We are we're all the same people and we all have some, some blood relations, whether we know it or not. Okay, that should be the last questions for today because we have crossed two hours and 10 minutes. So I'm going to end it over here. I know lots of people are asking questions. I can see the questions. I really, really apologize to all of you. I can't take everyone's questions. Uh, but I will keep on doing this as much as possible. Next week, again, there will be no live stream because I am again traveling for doing something interesting, of course. But I will, I will, I will need more questions from you. So the live stream won't happen next week, but I will need your questions. So I'm going to put out another communique on the the community tab for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so thank you very much for the questions. Always fun doing these live streams. Always fun interacting with you all. And I will keep on doing this for the foreseeable future. We're going to keep on doing this. Thank you very much. Have a great time. Have a good night. Good day wherever you are. And I'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye.